Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Friday, March 19. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Jan Fran. And Jan, the revolution won't be televised, will it? It'll probably come via some phone footage on social media. (laughs) Yeah, it won't be televised. It'll be tweeted. That's the new (laughs) saying, I think. We're going to take a look at one of the first revolutions to really utilise social media, the Arab Spring. It's been 10 years since the uprising. Where are they now? If I look now at our situation, it's definitely worse than it was prior to the uprisings or the first wave of uprisings. Yeah, it was a revolution that was spurred on by phone footage that went out all over the world via social media. So why didn't it work? The old-fashioned autocrats were able to use those, frankly, very old-fashioned tools of, of, of imprisonment um, and intimidation and arrest to shut down their opponents, to to reverse the Arab Spring. That is our briefing topic in just a moment. First, let's get to the big news of the day. Well, it's a very important safety tick that we're starting with for the AstraZeneca vaccine in Europe. Just this morning, the European Medicines Agency announced their investigation into blood clot fears has found that the benefits of administering the vaccine outweigh any of the risks. Yeah, the EU body reached a a clear scientific conclusion that the jab was not associated with an increased risk of blood clots. And this comes after several European countries, including Germany, France, Spain and Italy, uh, suspended their use of the drug after fears that it was giving people blood clots. The EMA says that 20 million people have gotten the jab already across Europe and the UK and that they reviewed 25 cases of clotting. So they have been reviewing cases. Comparatively, though, those numbers are incredibly small. Europe did pause the rollout, but the UK continued with the AstraZeneca vaccine rollout. Here is the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, responding to the news from the EU's medicines agency. So the Oxford jab is safe and the Pfizer jab is safe. The thing that isn't safe is catching COVID, which is why it's so important that we all get our jabs as soon as our turn comes. And as it happens, I'm getting mine tomorrow. There you go, Boris. I feel like Boris Johnson's always getting jabs. Hasn't he already gotten a jab? Hasn't he already gotten two? I'm not sure. He's definitely had COVID. So, yeah, interesting there that they've tried to clear that up in the EU. It's obviously, as we've been reporting this week on the briefing, very, very messy. So hopefully this is a step towards clarity. Yeah, and look, I, I do think we need as much clarity as possible on this sort of stuff because usually the headline can travel halfway around the world before the nuances come limping after, right? So, mm. you know, the, the headline is, I think, something that your average person would read and, and feel a bit worried about and then you dig into it a little bit more and it's not as concerning as what the headline suggests it might be. And in a time where people might be already a bit hesitant you know, you need to be getting the right information out to people at the right time for sure, which I guess is why Boris Johnson seems to constantly be getting jabbed. Well, back home and the number of vaccines being given out to the states will be ramped up, um, which is just as well because the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian says that her state uh, will not be able to complete the rollout by the end of October without more vaccines and also without every GP and pharmacist on board. I'm uh, absolutely committed to supporting our efforts to vaccinate 6 million people in New South Wales. It will not happen in the way in the current program. A dose of reality there. So they are slowly ramping it up. The states will be given 150,000 doses from next week. Um, this week they were at 140,000. The week before they are at 50,000. So slowly building there. 
Yeah, there's also another 150,000 doses that will be rolled out through Commonwealth clinics as well. Now, phase 1B begins on Monday, and that includes those who are over 70 and those with medical conditions. Uh, They're the people that will be eligible. Um, It follows on, obviously, from 1A, uh, which is frontline health workers, aged care workers, quarantine and border staff. They've already got the very least, their first shot of the vaccination as well. Now, the plan is to vaccinate 4 million people by the end of April across Australia. I've done some very rudimentary <laughs> number crunching on my calculator. It looks like if we continue with this trajectory that we've currently got now, it's going to be quite difficult to get there. And the permanent boost to the dole has passed Parliament. Yeah, JobSeeker recipients will receive an extra $50 per fortnight to live off after the Morrison government's income support bill passed the Senate with the support of Labor. Yeah, so advocates were asking for a lot more. These are people living on $40 a day. This is just a few extra dollars a day. So it doesn't really make a huge difference. Better than nothing, though. And good news on the jobs front. Um, Prime Minister Scott Morrison has declared that Australia now has more jobs than it did before the COVID-19 pandemic in a quote-unquote remarkable economic fight back. In less than 12 months from when the recession began caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, there are now more jobs in the Australian economy than there were before the pandemic. Yeah, so the unemployment rate fell to 5.8%, down from 6.3% in January. So that's a a big drop in a short space of time. More than 88,000 Australians found new work last month. It's good news, isn't it? But the government still says that it's standing by its plan to end the JobKeeper wage subsidy later this month. The Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, has said that, you know, while it is good news, the recovery is going to continue to be tough. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, but months from here will continue to be challenging because we are still in the midst of a global pandemic and the greatest economic shock since the Great Depression. There are sectors, there are regions across the country who continue to do it tough. So reading between the lines there, I think what he was saying, and I was listening to him give a few interviews yesterday, um, he's saying that Yes, these figures are fantastic and we're, you know, quietly patting ourselves on the back. But the reality is when JobKeeper ends, which is basically in a couple of weeks, mm. that, that number could change, that the unemployment figure might go up because a lot of those people are still in their jobs because of JobKeeper. But mm. they've got to start winding it back at some point. So they're kind of holding their breath to see how the next few months of unemployment figures go. And look, I think it is important to keep a month-by-month track on how the economy is going. I think we're still very much in the midst of the pandemic um, and we're really not going to know the full effects, I mean, I think for perhaps many years down the track when the dust has really settled and we can look back at this time. And a single ticket has won a $50 million Powerball draw last night. Um, I, I actually can't with stories like this because the official said that the winning entry was not registered. So it means that there may be a person out there among us who does not realise, my friends, that they are a multi-millionaire. It was the only winning Division One ticket. I don't know which one of you has it. Check your pockets check the laundry, check your mattress. I don't know where you put your lottery tickets, but that's crazy. It was sold at a New South Wales lotteries outlet in Sydney's CBD. I wonder if it's a briefing listener. 
I mean, if, if it is, for the love of God, you, you might have won $50 million. <laughs> That's insane to me. I don't even know what I'd do with that. I don't know what I'd do with myself if I had that much money. That's well, why I'll never have it. <laughs> and exciting news for the AFL last night. They kicked off a season opener. And, Jan, I guess we wouldn't normally celebrate the MCG being half full, but almost 50,000 people inside the MCG in the context of what happened last year is quite amazing. Mate, I don't follow AFL at all. I am celebrating big time. I am actually in Melbourne and it was the first thing that my taxi driver said to me when I got in the cab. He said, oh, did you know the AFL starting today? And I said, this was yesterday. I said, no, mate, I had no idea, but I'm very happy that you're happy about it. It's a good vibe. Good vibe down here. Yeah, good vibe in Melbourne, good vibe around the country for AFL fans. Um, Richmond played Carlton. Richmond got up uh, 105 points to Carlton's 80. Jack Rerolt. Uh, kicked four goals and two behinds. So um, Dusty Martin, the big celebrity, was out there playing as well. So a very positive moment. Our phones and social media have changed the way that big protest movements happen. So think about the George Floyd footage that sparked the Black Lives Matter protests in the US last year. Please! It was actually the fact that someone filmed that police officer killing George Floyd that drove this new reckoning about race. But I guess the question is, in the long run, how much do these big you know, moments, as we now refer to them, how much do they change the world that we live in, right? That's the focus of today's briefing. One of the earliest of these moments, these moments that are fueled by phone footage, social media, then mainstream media was 10 years ago in the Middle East. Yeah, it was the Arab Spring uprising. It was led by young people, by pro-democracy activists, and it aimed basically to put the power back in the hands of the people. So it started with a big series of protests on the streets of Cairo in Egypt. The Arab Spring, democracy spreading across the Middle East. Breaking news tonight from Cairo. The clash has taken on a sinister turn. They returned to Tahrir Square, thousands of Egyptians, to chant the same chant of the revolution. In Egypt, President Hosni Mubarak has stepped down. The momentum toppled dictators in Tunisia, Libya, Egypt and Yemen. Yeah, so I remember watching this moment on TV, but I also simultaneously remember watching it on Twitter. And YouTube. And YouTube. Facebook. Over months and months and months. So it really felt like change was afoot. But what exactly did that uprising, that so-called moment, what did it achieve in the end? Hossam El Hamalawi is an Egyptian journalist, blogger and activist. He now lives in exile in Berlin. He actually helped organise some of the Arab Spring protests in Cairo. Hossam, welcome. Take us back to 2011. What was it like being on the ground there in Cairo? These are moments that are uh, very difficult to describe uh, now, I mean, compared to the dismal situation we're in. But these were times of empowerment. These were times of revolt of hope, of uh, dreams, uh, of seeing what we worked for for a very long time over the years, finally coming uh, um, to reality. These were uh, some of the greatest uh, times in uh, the region's modern history, in my view. Hassan, why were people taking to the streets in the first place? The revolt in 2011 came as a climax People were increasingly getting frustrated over 
the neoliberal uh, reforms of Hosni Mubarak. People were extremely frustrated with the daily torturous experience with the Egyptian police, where they patrol the streets, they they harass the citizens, they extort them for money. Um, there isn't really much difference between the police and a criminal syndicate uh, in Egypt. The revolt was not just over domestic reasons. The revolt was also against Mubarak's foreign policy, vis-a-vis the Palestinians, vis-a-vis the Iraqis, vis-a-vis his very close and warm relations with the U.S. and Israel. All of these elements, I mean, played into the accumulation of dissent in Egypt. From our point of view, it really did seem like a lot of that footage coming from people's phones inside the protest movement in Tahir Square, seeing the tanks or, or the police backing away. That is how we managed to see this process. And it seemed to really drive a lot of energy and expectation into what could happen there, what the potential of this uprising was. How much do you think the technology um, of phone cameras and social media changed that movement? One of the methods that we have invented or we, we came up with to try to punch above our weight is to work closely to spread the visuals of any industrial actions, of mm-hmm. any small protest that has been happening uh, in the years prior to the uprising to the widest possible audience uh, uh, ever. That's where technology played a role in, in spreading the word. But the actual organization was on the ground, mainly. Ten years on, how do you look back at the Arab Spring? Do you think it's delivered on its promises? Uh, the straight answer is no. I mean, if if I look now at our situation, it's definitely worse than it was uh, prior to the uprisings or the first wave of uprisings. And if you want uh, a short answer for um, whether anything was achieved or, you know, were we victorious or defeated? I mean, we were definitely defeated. There is no question about this. And I know some people try to romanticize um, about the situation and say, well, you know, consciousness of people changed and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which, I mean, they are all things that I appreciate. But the end result is we did not manage to topple the regime. Uh, We managed to topple the heads of the regimes in the different Arab countries. And uh, the remaining body of the regime fought back like a hydra, you know, with with three heads. And they managed to, to defeat us. Now, is that the end of the story? The answer is no. Mm. Uh, there is always hope. Um, and that's what we're living for. That was Hosam El Hamalawi, who is an Egyptian journalist. Another very interesting perspective on the Arab Spring and also the way new media impacts these protest movements is Peter Grester. He's the Aussie journo who got locked up for covering the Egyptian protests. He spent 400 days in prison. And at the time, that was a huge story as well, Jan. There was Mm. a massive campaign to get him out. And I remember that beautiful moment where he... He flew out of the country. We were all waiting for it to happen and eventually, luckily for him and for all of us, it did. Um, He is now a professor of journalism at the University of Queensland. Peter, we just spoke to a young Egyptian activist who says the Arab Spring was a failure. Do you think this uprising delivered on any of its aims? If you look at the way things are at the moment, it's hard to see that it did. Um, Even back in 2014 when I was imprisoned in Egypt, um, I remember speaking to a lot of the activists. In fact, I was in prison alongside guys like Allah Abdel Fattah, who was one of the great inspirations for 
hundreds of thousands of people. Um, Ahmed Meher and, and uh, Mohammed Adel, who are two of the organisers of the April 6 movement that really organised the demonstrations. And, and even they back then said that the situation that we were going through was far worse than it was under Mubarak at any point. And of course, from that point on, it, it, it's gone downhill. There was real hope there for a moment because I remember watching it on TV but also watching it on Twitter and it was the first time that I could really kind of connect with people on the ground and it was younger people that were talking about this revolution and it really felt like it might be a moment that could change things. Is social media just presenting a a picture that's not the same as the reality on the ground? Is it presenting too rosy a picture? I think the picture is much more complex than that. I think there is there was un, indisputably um, a, an appetite for radical change in Egypt at the time. There was indisputably a hunger and a yearning for for democracy, and we saw we saw that on the streets. I mean, you, you had literally millions of Egyptians out on the streets protesting, and and you don't get that unless it represents something real and genuine. In that kind of environment, the old-fashioned autocrats were able to use. Those frankly very old-fashioned tools of of, of imprisonment um, and intimidation and arrest to shut down their opponents to to reverse the Arab Spring and, and take us to where we are today. So it sounds like, in a sense, the the technology can amplify the movement and create a level of excitement that goes beyond the real nuts and bolts organisational capabilities of the original movement. There's no two ways about it. It, it can't amplify those messages. And, that, and that's why um, governments are really very nervous about about social media and why they've had to become very quick to, to shut down um, Twitter and Facebook when, when things get tough and, and at times shut down even the entire internet. It works in that respect. But it, it, I just think we need to understand the limitations of what, of what it can mm. achieve when it comes to really difficult social issues. Is it more just a show? Is it more just on the surface? It looks like things are happening, it gets people razzed up, but actually there's a lot more nuance underneath and in the end the rest of the world probably wasn't as privy to that. Yeah, I think it, I think what it does is it just shows the limitations of the technology. You know, humans are complex, difficult creatures and there's only so much of that complexity and difficulty that you can convey in 140 characters um, or whatever the limits are these days. It's a tough thing to take the technology and get a result out of difficult politics. I think it's a wonderful tool. I mean, I, I use Twitter, but I am also very aware that I can't engage in really difficult conversations. It's very difficult because, it, you know, as so many of us have experienced, is that it often boils down into a, into a binary shouting match. Mm. And that's where things start to fall apart. So, Peter, the Arab Spring really seemed like one of the first big global revolutionary moments since the smartphone and social media were invented in the late 2000s. Um, a more recent example is the Black Lives Matter protests, which were really, their impact was massively increased after the George Floyd moment last year. In a sense, the Me Too reckoning came about partly because of social media. Do you think these these moments that we're sort of experiencing and, and sharing and seeing via social media are having a positive impact on the world? I think that they are having a positive impact. Let me go back to the Arab Spring briefly. One of the other problems wasn't just that that social media wasn't able to deliver complex conversations. It was that the institutions, uh, the fundamental institutions that Egypt needed to run those conversations, the old-fashioned institutions like um, a free and independent press, um, 
like pro-democracy groups and independent judiciary and so on. None of those things were present in Egypt. We've got those things in the West. We've got those things in the countries that are, a lot of the countries that are at the core of the heart of the, the Black Lives Matter protests, for example. In Australia, we've got the institutions um, that are capable of picking up some of the conversations that have followed on from the sexual abuse scandals that are engulfing the Canberra at the moment. I'm not saying that it's hopeless. What I am saying is that we need to understand how it works. We need to understand its limitations and we need to actively look for ways to pick up the conversations from where the where social media leaves off. That was Peter Grester, Australian journalist, uh, now lecturer at UQ, formerly locked up in Egypt during the Arab Spring. Jen, I thought that was really interesting what he said there at the end, that there can be this galvanizing excitement around a movement which is you know propelled by social media but what really matters is how that connects with the real world the rubber on the road making real changes in society and that in western societies that's more possible than in a place where a lot of those real world institutions aren't open to change yeah well i think what we see on the other side of the world is the tip of the iceberg and we think that that's the iceberg and it's not the iceberg is all of the rest of the kind of real-world institutions that, as we heard Peter Grester say, Egypt didn't have. There can be 10,000 tweets, and if you get thrown in prison, then that's the reality. And I guess the optimistic element was that those movements, you know, in countries like ours and like America, as we're talking about there with the Black Lives Matter movement, that hopefully this energy, passion, uh, amplification of new voices does lead to positive change. Well, that is it for the briefing in terms of the Monday to Friday edition. But of course, we have the weekend briefing with Jamila Rizvi. Jamila, who have you got on this week? Hi, Tom. This weekend, I am chatting to Brooke Boney, who is the entertainment reporter for Today on Channel 9. Brooke is a Gamilaroi Gomoroi woman, and she and I caught up on a whole bunch of Indigenous issues that have been in the news in recent weeks. We also talked about Brooke's move to commercial television, what it's like meeting Hollywood celebrities, and how she gets up just so early in the morning. All right, that should be great. Brooke Boney on the weekend briefing. Uh, we will catch you Monday. Have a great weekend. Listener.